good to see each of you this morning. Let's all stand together, please. Take your hymnal. You're going to go to page number 55, at the cross, at the cross. Hey, I'm so glad that he still takes burdens away at the cross. Aren't you? Say amen. All right. And number 52, and let's sing out on the blood will never lose its power. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on
please shake hands with those around you. Let them know that you're glad to see them here in the Lord's house. signs of the times are very clear. The coming of the Lord is very near. The signs of his coming multiply. Look up, he's coming, draw it nigh. And when we hear the trumpet sound, rejoicing will rise. When we hear the trumpet sound, we'll meet in the skies, for the Lord will come. We'll surely come down when we hear the trumpet sound. This generation might not pass away before the glorious dawning of that day until we hear that great triumphant cry. Look up, he's coming in the sky, in the trumpet sound rejoicing will rise when we hear the trumpet sound we'll meet in the sky for the lord will come we'll surely come down when we hear the trumpet sound oh the lord will come we'll surely come down when we hear the trumpet sound when we hear the trumpet I didn't know if he wanted me to continue that, but it was not going to happen. So good to see each of you this morning. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not going to do it. I know you just have went through surgery and all that. I'd like to do you a favor, but you don't want that. <laughs> so good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us this morning for the first time here at Central Baptist, let me get you to raise your hand nice and big, please. All right. Hey, let me tell you, next week is big day. We still have a lot of these for everyone to grab a hold of and, and just work hard this week. And let's beg and plead and, and compel and do everything we can do to get one more person in church for next Sunday. Amen. Uh, bus workers are going to be working hard, and uh, we're excited about it. Um, let me say that, um, remind you about the meeting that we always have at 530. If you have ever helped us on one of the stations out there, uh, for the dunk tank or one of the bounce houses, um, we want you to be in that meeting if you'd like to, if you haven't worked, and but you would like to, go ahead and be in that meeting. It's going to be in the first Sunday school class on the right as you go upstairs on the right. All right? So um, you're going to be there at 530, and we'll go through everything. We already have people in places for that, uh, so 
if you're not in the meeting, but you're scheduled to work at one of those stations, we'll get in touch with you and let you know. You weren't in the meeting, but you're going to be needed out there on the station. Uh, so uh, we just assume that you want to serve, amen? Uh, every Christian should be a serving Christian. That's the way it works. So good to see each of you. All right, we've got a little uh, situation we need to take care of this morning. Uh, our Thanksgiving dinner, annual Thanksgiving dinner is coming up um, November the 13th. It'll be here before you know it. And that'll be at 5.30 in the evening on a Saturday. So be sure you jot down that date and the time because we want you to want you to be here for that. But we need to we need to get some food ready. So I, I need your help this morning and let's do it fast so that it doesn't take time because our services here are going out all over the world. We don't want people over in uh, Iraq or somewhere, you know, to uh, get get hungry because we're dragging it all about this food and everything. We uh we're, we're going to need uh, turkey dressing and with gravy, and um, we, we need seven people. We already have one, so we need seven people to volunteer to bring turkey. All right, so come on, help us out here. Do it fast. Ernie, back there. Over here, how about on this side over here? We need, uh, we need five more, five more. We need five more. Come on, all right. Is that Karen? I can't see that. Karen? We need three more turkeys. Are, are you sure he's counting right, Pam? <laughs> all right. Three more. Three more. All right, come on. You, you need to be here. This is for our church family. We need. All right, here's another one. <clears throat> We need two more. Two more. Any, anybody on the balcony? John. Okay, here's one, here's one. Need one more. Any of you guys up there on the balcony? You gonna bring one? They're they're already turkeys. <laughs> that was Tony said that, not me. <laughs> All right, one more. Okay, uh, all right, now we need some hams. We need uh, eight hams. So, all right, here's over here, one. All right, Steve and Paint Amy. And uh, do it for Amber, Rachel. How many is that? Need one more. Need one more. All right, I see. Okay, Karen. All right, we need some green beans. And um, we're talking about a big pot, big pot of green beans each. We need, uh, we already have one, so we need seven of those. So, Randy, green beans. Now, these are... Green beans, you snap yourself, you know, and and <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> we need uh, Arthur, Arthur back there, Ernie, Phil upstairs. So, and we already had one, so so that's enough. All right, I don't know what yams are, but right, you've got yams down here. We need seven yams. I think that's supposed to be sweet taters. That's a fancy name for sweet taters. Yeah. All right. How many? Come on. Need to. One upstairs. All right, Amy. Pat, back there. Matt, did you have your hand up? No? Okay. <laughs> right. Brother, Brother Puckett. That's enough, all right. 
mashed potatoes, 10 pounds each. Mashed potatoes, eight. We need eight of those. Tracy? All right. Some of you are not voting here. We need, we need everybody voting. <laughs> All right, Mickey up there. Another one. Yeah. All right, John. Need two more. Two more. Brother Puckett. All right, now everybody bring desserts. Now, pumpkin pie, pecan pie. Now, uh, if, if you don't have the time to bake them at home, I'll tell you who, who does made from scratch, homemade, is Publix. You can buy Publix bakeries. <laughs> I used to uh, insist that it be homemade, but I, I got away from that because we didn't have very many pies. So never <laughs> All right, if you, if you didn't volunteer for anything else, bring some rolls and also uh, sweet tea, gallons of sweet tea and unsweet tea, and then a variety of Pepsi, not Coke, not Coke because Coke is still trying to make us less white. So we don't want that. We, so bring Pepsi products and just bring a whole bunch of them. All right, thank you. and turn to hymn number 53. Hymn number 53, please stand and join me in singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the You may be seated. All right, ushers, I hope it's not as hard to get money out of these folks as it is food. <laughs> Pray for Brother Bill. He's with us this morning, but he's still having some complications from his surgery. Uh, pray for Gina. She'll be traveling back tomorrow. She's attending a funeral service up in Tennessee. Um, Jean Brimer. Uh, they put his surgery off till today. In fact, he's probably in surgery right now. He's out now? Okay, good. And uh, also, Brother Eddie, um, he's having some complications. I don't really know what it is that's going on right now, but uh, pray for him. And um, uh, Gail said to be taking him over to Moffitt tomorrow to check him out. So uh, remember him in prayer. 
The funeral service for uh, Harvey Carter will be on Tuesday. It'll be there at Landmark Baptist Church. The viewing will be at 1 o'clock, and the service will be at 2 o'clock. And um, for those that had not heard, Harvey uh, passed away on Wednesday. And um, that'll be, so there'll be, a, be folks that are um, nephews and nieces and aunts and uncles and all that will be traveling from other places. So pray for their safety as they come in for that. All right, let's bow our heads now and look to the Lord in prayer. For the flowers, would you... Amen.
ready to go, aren't you? <clears throat> We're going to be looking at three different scriptures this morning, and that'll be the heading for each of the three points. I was taught early in uh, my ministry that every sermon ought to have three points and a poem, and uh, <laughs> I don't always abide by that, but we got three points today. <clears throat> but I want to I want to give you a little in- introduction before we get to those verses. Handwriting analysis, or what is called graphology, is the science involved in produce, producing a uh, personality profile of the writer by examining the characteristics, the traits, the strokes of an individual's handwriting. Besides creating a complete personality profile, many other things are revealed in your handwriting. Now, this is according to the science of this. Uh, health issues, morality, past experiences, hidden talents, even mental problems. <clears throat> and when you see some of the handwriting with some of the folks that, that I see the handwriting, I think they do have mental problems. The idea behind that, the science, is that uh, your brain guides your hand. Everything put on paper is a result of a two-way circuit between your brain and the motor reflex muscles of your hand. So your handwriting literally becomes a polygraph, a readout of your complete self. The Bible, we know that the Bible, the Word of God, is God communicating to man. All of the Bible is the Word of God, but God used human instruments to record it. God told them, the Holy Spirit told men, the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And every word, every word in our Bible is inspired of God. But we have three occasions in the Bible where God communicated non-verbally. In other words, it's in written form. The hand or finger of God appeared and wrote a specific message. Now, if our handwriting says a great deal about us, I wonder what God's handwriting says about him. So I want you to look first at Exodus chapter 31. And verse 18. And this is whenever uh, God, this is in the uh, passage or in the uh, context there where God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And you know what happened uh, when Moses went down uh, because the people were uh, naked and dancing and all kind of junk going on. And Moses got mad and threw the uh, tablets on the ground, broke them. And so God called him back up, and he then, God wrote of it with his own hand uh, the new, a new set and gave to him. And it said in verse 13, he gave unto Moses, when he made an end of communion with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written, with the finger of God. Moses had heard the voice of God, he'd watched the hand of God and had seen the glory of God. Now he's introduced to the finger of God. The finger of God wrote upon these tablets to provide guidance to direct the people. The the giving of the commandments and other requirements that constituted Hebrew law was one of God's most necessary acts. Evor Powell comments, his people who had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years were an undisciplined multitude, unorganized, unreliable, and unable to understand why certain deeds were prohibited. They had been a nation without guidance and knew nothing of priests and prophets. They existed only to obey their Egyptian taskmasters. There was no inspired standard of morality by which conduct could be judged. 
Now here, these people that Moses had led out of Egypt, uh, some Bible scholars, they differ on the number, but they say from one and a half million to three million people, as many as that, that came out of Egypt. They had been slaves. They'd been in servitude for over 400 years. Most of these people knew nothing about life outside of slavery. There, 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 was no, there was no kind of religion. There was no, you know, no uh, guidance from, from God in, in all of this. They, they were slaves, undisciplined slaves. And so when Moses, when God had called him up in the mountain, when he descended from the mount, the waiting people anticipated that life was about to be forever changed. No longer would they be required to live under the dictatorship of Pharaoh, but they would be required to live in partnership with God. No longer would an undisciplined people be permitted to do that which is right in their own eyes. They were now accountable to the one who had delivered them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was now their personal bookkeeper. With the writing of the finger of God came a new position. And in the context of these verses, the keeping of the Sabbath is reinforced. And I mention that because, because I'm leading up to a point that, that will help you to see why, why God gave them the Sabbath as, <clears throat> as a day for them to keep. Back up in verse 13. It said, for it is a sign, talking about the sign, it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. <clears throat> now, God had entered into a relationship with his people. It was a covenant relationship in which they were to know him as their God. And, and to that end, God decreed that they should set apart one day, one whole day out of seven, to rest in his goodness and greatness and glory. Now notice in verse 14, he said, You shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Now here, here's where God is giving this day, the keeping of this day, to the Jews. It was never given to Gentiles. It is not given to the church. This was given to the Jews and to, Jew, to the Jews only. And he said, you shall keep the Sabbath day, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Now, as an aside here, uh, we, we don't worship on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is Saturday. The word Sabbath means seven. Uh, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Sunday is the first day of the week. And, and this is the day that's been given to Christian people that we are to assemble ourselves together to worship the Lord. The Sabbath was never given to us. And we, we have never been told to observe the Sabbath as a day of worship. Our day of worship is Sunday. Actually, for the Christian, every day is worship day. But there's a day that we to our, we're to assemble our, ourselves together. <clears throat> now, now the law, the law when God gave the law, it was simple. Failure, this is the law of the Sabbath, uh, failure to rest and worship God at his designated place of worship resulted in death. Thank God this no longer applies today. We'd have a lot of dead people, wouldn't we? The ceremonial law, the, the civil law, this was a part of the uh, civil law, was given to Israel as a nation. The ceremonial law that was given to them, there were three sets of laws. You had the civil law given just to Israel. You had the ceremonial law that was fulfilled in Christ. And then you have the moral law that's still in force as God's universal law for all people in all places. 
So God, God gave the law. You know, people look and say, well, you know, such restrictions and, you know, you have to, you have to obey all those commands. And, you know, uh, how, you know, this, this kind of hedges us in, having all these laws. No, the law was given as a protection to people. God knew the people better than they knew themselves. He knew their habits. He knew their hang-ups. He knew their handicaps. He knew that if left to themselves without any government or guidance, they would eventually cease to exist. So when the finger of God wrote on the two tables of testimony, God was instituting a rule of law that would protect a people who had proven time and again to be unfaithful. God knew that man's heart was full of murder, so he wrote, thou shalt not kill. God knew that man's heart was full of greed, so he wrote, thou shalt not covet. God knew that man's heart was full of idolatry, so he wrote, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Many view the law of God from the negative side rather than the positive side. They see it as, as, de as God declaring a harsh standard depriving people of any happiness. But God's primary concern for his people wasn't so much their happiness or healthiness, but their holiness. If they were holy, they would be happy and healthy. So when God said, thou shalt not, <clears throat> he was saying, in essence, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. I've got a better plan. I have a better way for you to live. So these tables of stone were written with the finger of God to show divine authorship. Moses didn't write or rewrite these words. God did. And the tablet showed his fingerprints to prove that he loved them enough to prepare an, an unorganized people to purify an undisciplined people and protect an unfaithful people. Then I want you to turn next to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 5. Now we're going to tie all this together. You'll see where we're going here after a while. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 5 verse 5 says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand <clears throat> and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 5 is the sad epitaph of how God disapproves of those who reject his grace and refuse his guidance and ridicule his glory. When the finger of God appears in this scene, we learn some things about the nature of God as well as what should be our response to him. In Daniel chapter 5, this fellow Belshazzar, he's uh, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He succeeded Nebuchadnezzar to the throne. And this is uh, the throne of the Babylonian Empire, the, uh, wor the ruling power of the whole world of that day. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had instructed his son before his death, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, he said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Now you know, you remember how Nebuchadnezzar, because of him trying to bring glory to himself and talking about his majesty and all that, how God uh, drove him out into the wilderness for seven years. He's out there eating grass and, and anything else that he could find to stay alive. But during that time, he came to know the Lord. And so now he's giving advice to Belshazzar that, of course, Belshazzar didn't keep it. He didn't accept this advice, didn't keep it. But he said, he said, I, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Now it becomes painfully obvious that Belshazzar did not allow that that advice, that compass to navigate his course and, and the finger of a man's hand begins to write on the wall. 
In verse 1, it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Now, while Belshazzar thought this was a feast, it literally turned into a funeral. In verse 2, Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. <clears throat> the walls of the city were thought to be insurmountable around Babylon, the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon itself thought to be impregnable. However, in Daniel chapter 4, Darius, the king of Persia, had just defeated Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> and was moving north to Babylon. Belshazzar was oblivious to the fact that his destruction was imminent. He was just a young, riotous, arrogant man who loved his wine, his women, and ways of the world. As the joy was growing and the juice was flowing, Belshazzar did the unthinkable. Verse 3, then they brought the golden vessels. Now these vessels, remember, were sanctified. They were set apart for the worship of God. These were things that had been dedicated to God. And for, for this heathen king to bring those vessels and to make them unsanctified by drinking wine out of those uh, sacred vessels, he was showing his, um, his rebellion against what his father had told him that he things that he should abide by because of the God of heaven. The Father is a, uh, the God of heaven. And it says here that they, they drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Now apparently Belshazzar had never heard or read the prophet of Isaiah in Isaiah 42 verse 8 where God said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Now, a fitting New Testament translation would be, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And then suddenly, while the joy grows and the juice flows, verse 5, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and rolled over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. God's response to such revelry and idolatry was fast, it was furious, it was frightening. From out of nowhere comes a mysterious hand without pen, pencil, or paper begins using begins use the wall as its compass, as its canvas. Verse 6 then, then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his lawns were loosed and his knees <clears throat> smote one against another. That's probably where Elvis got the song, I'm All Shook Up. <laughs> and so let's skip on, let's hurry on with the story here. And, and uh, uh, Daniel, they called for Nan uh, Daniel to come interpret what that message was. Belshazzar, the man who began the night living with Everything ended the night leaving with nothing. Verse 30 says, In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom. The handwriting of guilt denounces man in his sin. Even if you were to live with everything that money can buy, but leave without the one thing that money can't buy, the Bible says, What shall it profit a man? If he shall gain the whole world, gain the whole world, and lose his own soul. For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And then let's go on, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and verse 6. And this is uh, where they have found this woman in adultery, brought this woman and brought her to the Lord Jesus. And they, uh, they, what they were trying to do, they were trying to trick the Lord, trying to 
get him to do something, you know, that, that, uh, so that they could trap him. <clears throat> so they, they brought her. They said, you know, uh, in Moses' law, it says, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery and all that. This they said, tempting him, they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now, this is a story of great familiarity. We meet a guilty woman, a guiltless crowd, and a graceful Savior. In verse 3, it says, The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they'd set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery and in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded thus that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Now make no mistake about it, this woman was guilty. She had been taken in adultery in the very act, it says. However, the, the woman is not the main issue here. The woman was simply a means to an end. She was the means that the Pharisees and scribes wished to use to end to the end of trapping Jesus. See, there was somebody else involved in that situation too. Where was he? They didn't bring him. You see, there it's not the adultery that they're concerned about. And the Lord knew their hearts. The Lord knew what they were up to. Verse 6, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. The question is often asked, what did Jesus write? What do you think Jesus wrote? I don't know. But whatever it was, it scattered that crowd like scalded, they were scalded dogs. They took off. They were nowhere, nowhere to be found. When Jesus finished his writing assignment, he stands up. And the scene has completely changed. When he began writing, there were people everywhere. But when he finished writing, there wasn't a soul to be found except for the guilty sinner. Verse 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And then notice what she said. It's very important. No man, Lord, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now the Lord is not con condoning what she's done. He's not condoning that. He's not excusing it. But notice here, and I call your attention to this, notice that she called him Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, it says, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. So this woman, in just this brief time here, she by faith has trusted the Lord as her Savior. She calls him Lord, meaning Master. And, and the Bible tells us that, that, that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Ghost. The soul of the adulteress had been illuminated by the grace of God when she confessed her faith in the Lordship of Christ. Since that's the means by which pardon becomes possible, her, her confession there indicated that her sins were gone. There was nothing left condemned. Her past was forgotten, her present was forgiven, and her future was as bright as the noonday sun. Now, I want to I give you some thoughts to consider here about all of this and, and trying to tie all of this together, all three of these uh, situations together. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, the Bible says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, the handwriting of ordinances reveal the debt that we owed. It was a debt created by the law of God, which revealed our sin. It was a debt that we could not pay. In simple terms, it was an IOU that would be owed forever. At the cross, 
the same fingers attached to the same hand that wrote on the ground were nailed to a cross. And there the blood that flowed from those sacred fingers erased, rubbed out, and canceled the IOU and wrote, paid in full. When we had nothing to offer him, he had everything to offer us. And a bloody cross and an empty tomb show how much he wanted us for himself. Salvation is a gift. There's nothing we can earn or merit or work for or deserve. If salvation could be earned, we would have some part in it. Thus, we, would, we could boast of what we've done. But salvation is a gift. It's something that you receive as a gift. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't depend on your merit. But it's a free gift. Salvation has a goal. The goal for every saved person is a life of good works. In verse 10, it says, uh, this in Ephesians 2, uh, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, we, we all know what that verse means. The, the, the Bible does not teach that we're saved by works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should what? Should boast, lest any man should boast. And then it goes on, for we are, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You don't, you don't work to get saved, you work because you are saved. We have been created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The word workmanship there is a word that reveals that God is still honing his writing skills. The Greek word there is the word poema, poema. You might already have recognized the English word, the word poem. That's where we get the English word poem from that Greek word that's used there, handiwork. So every day, God desires to conform us to the image of the Son, changing us from glory to glory, molding us, fashioning us, shaping us, and developing us so that he alone might receive the maximum glory for it all. God is writing his poem upon your life my life the question is this what does that poem say what does it say what will it say see God we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works if, if you're not serving the Lord if you're not if you're not uh, doing good works if you're not being conformed to the image of God's Son, then you're not right with God. You're out of fellowship with God. You're, you're actually rebelling against, against what God desires for you. But God is writing, he's writing a poem upon our life. And I wonder, I wonder, when we stand before the Lord, I wonder what that poem's going to say. What's it going to say? I read this story. A violinist stepped on the stage one evening and drew the bow across his violin and the room fell silent and out came the most glorious music the audience had ever heard. When he, when he finished, the crowd leaped to their feet and gave ovation after ovation. And then what happened next left them speechless. The violinist took the violin and broke it on the podium into a thousand pieces. He looked at the audience and said, ladies and gentlemen, don't be dismayed. This was only a three and a half dollar violin. It's not so much the violin that makes the music as it is the man who draws the bow. I need not remind you, but our lives left to ourselves might play, but we're out of tune. We would not be 
playing the right tune if we were if our lives were left to ourselves but our lives placed in the hands of the master conductor play something so beautiful so wonderful so masterful that only he can get the glory out of it my life in him is a result of grace his life in me will result in glory I pray that the poem that he's writing about me will do him justice. As I say in it, I wrote down, I write it down in the flyleaf of every Bible I've ever owned. There's a saying, God is looking for men and women in whom his glory is safe. I wonder what will be the poem of your life. Would you stand please, your heads bowed. Now, Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless the invitation time. Lord, we, we thank you for the word of God. And Lord, I know that these words have been spoken this morning from on my part were very feeble, but I know that the Holy Spirit can take those words and make application to our lives. And I pray that he would bring conviction, first of all, to the hearts of those that may be here without Christ. And I pray that they'll respond to that conviction they'll come and accept Christ as a personal savior and Lord if they're Christians today that maybe the life they're living is kind of out of tune with God and what God wants the poem the music that God would like for our lives to be displaying and if there are those that need to come this morning, we dedicate their life and may pray that they will come. Lord, I just ask you to have your will and way in every heart and life. Do what needs to be done. May each of us do what we ought to do. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing a verse of invitation song, I invite you to come. If God's spoken to your heart, would you come as we sing?